like a trusted turnout jacket you've had for years. Flex 7 outer shell fabric delivers a perfectly broken-in feel on the very first wear. Flexible, comfortable, and powered with the strength of Enforced technology, Flex 7 outer shell fabric is made to move. To learn more, visit tenkatafabrics.com slash flex7. Flex 7, powered by Enforced technology. Only from Tenkata Protective Fabrics. Seconds count when responding to an emergency. Minutes save count when documenting your day. Emergency networking makes records management easier and faster with its Fire and EMS solution. User-friendly, complete online and offline functionality, highly customizable, all at an affordable price. For more information, please visit emergencynetworking.com. Hello there, everybody. Welcome to Fire Engineering Blog Talk Radio. In this episode of the Professional Volunteer Fire Department, the podcast that you know is dedicated to our great volunteer fire service and getting all of the listeners to embrace the message that developing and portraying and upholding a professional image and reputation is the duty and responsibilities of all firefighters. And again, Remember, true professionalism is never defined by a paycheck. Tom Merrill, thanks for joining me again on this episode. And I got to tell you, I'm going to start off with it because people have been asking. I know I've been talking about it a lot on previous podcasts. It finally happened. The book, The Professional Volunteer Fire Department, is out. It was released a couple of weeks ago. And um, it took a lot longer than I thought. We were hoping to have it out at FDIC. But hey, it was worth the wait. I'm really proud of it. Um, You can go on Fire Engineering Books and Video and get a copy. I'd be honored if you did. I've got people that have already sent me copies to sign it for them. Get a hold of me if you'd like me to do that. But um, I'm really, really proud of it. It's over 373 or 376 pages long. And um, it's just got a lot of information in it, a lot of things I talk about in my presentations. And to see it come into a book format and be put out by fire engineering books and videos is, is it's, I'm just, I'm tickled. I love it. I'm very honored and I'm so glad that it's out. And I know people have been asking, when's it coming out? When's it coming out? You keep talking about it. It is out. The Professional Volunteer Fire Department and you can go on Fire Engineering Books and Videos. Just throw that in, you know, in Google search. It'll take you right to Fire Engineering Books and Videos, and you can find the book there. And um, I took a bunch of them with me up. I was at the Old Forge Fire School last week. Oh, what a great conference! Five hundred and twenty-five registered people at this great conference in Old Forge, New York, which is nestled in the Adirondack Mountains. It's absolutely beautiful. Phenomenal people, professional people in a just gorgeous setting. So many wonderful people from the Firefighters Association State of New York and then from fire departments all over the Adirondack region, even west um, to my area. Uh, Bowmansville Fire Department was there from Lancaster, New York. Cicero was there from the Syracuse area. Tully was there from the Syracuse area. A lot of, it's not just the Adirondack region. And like I said, over 500 people were registered for this great, great conference. Um, I was able to present uh, the keynote presentation there, Professionalism, Passion, and Pride. And I took some books with me. I don't know. I'm new at this. I'm an amateur. Does anybody want to buy the book? And I sold them all. 
and I could have sold more. So that made me happy. And um, I was uh, just a great conference. My poor wife, I drag her with her to that conference because it's up in the Adirondacks where we have a family home. And she had to put up with me uh, talking to everybody, talking fire stuff. Uh, they did a fire parade. They had great networking events at night where they had bands and they had a block party and just met so many great people, which again, you that have gone, you know that's what these conferences are all about. So if you ever get a chance to go to the Old Forge Fire School, highly recommend that one. And um, thank you to all that bought my book. I wish I had more. And speaking of my book, as you know, that's the subject, uh, the information in there is a subject for my presentations. And I'm honored to be back at FDIC next year. And um, my book will be there. And I hope you can join me at FDIC, which is April 15th to the 20th. Yes, 15th to the 20th in Indianapolis, and my class will be Monday the 15th. I'll be doing a four-hour workshop talking about all things professional. So love for you to join us in Indianapolis and uh, take in that great conference. Um, as you know, I talk about it all the time. It's the best fire conference there is in the United States, and um, hopefully you can join us next uh, next year in April. So we're going to get right into it. Uh, we're going to get back into firefighting. We're going to get back into some tactics and strategies and some information about uh, firefighting and specifically the bre uh, residential bread and so-called bread and butter fire. Um, if you remember, I had Jeff Shoop on for three episodes um, earlier this year talking about nozzles and flows, and we did delve into a little bit of fire tactics for different types of fires. We're going to concentrate on the residential bread and butter fire today. They account for the majority of fire deaths in this country, and there's still a lot of house fires contrary to uh, some people's belief. And I brought a subject matter expert on to talk about it. He has a very, very good presentation. Uh, today's Residential Fires, I believe, is the name of it. And that gentleman is Jim Duffy. Um, perhaps you've heard of him. He teaches at FDIC, teaches all over the country. He writes a lot. He's very well known. And he's retired from the Wallingford, Connecticut Fire Department, where he retired as a battalion chief. He started out as one of us. He was a proud volley in Mineola, Long Island, just a few years ago. I'll let him talk about that. And like I said, he teaches. He's an FDIC presenter. He's got an awesome fire engineering podcast with his great friend and colorful Chief uh, Avillo, Anthony Avillo, and their podcast is Fireground Strategies and Other Stuff from the Streets. His resume is long. His experience is second to none. His words of wisdom are wise. And we are so fortunate to have him on the podcast to spend some time with us here on this episode. Chief Duffy, welcome to the show, my friend. Well, thank you so much for having me. Uh, much appreciated. Um, your words of praise are a little bit beyond <laughs> who I am and what I am. I'm a very humble person, much like yourself. Um, yes, I have been doing it a long time. And just by keeping my eyes open and paying attention and watching, I've learned a tremendous amount. But that's not enough. I've gone to classes. I take classes. I'm retired. I'm still going to people's classes. Um, and you use the word the professional volunteer fire department, the words that you share with everybody is true in the career side as well as the volunteer side. You always have to present the best version of yourself when you're in public, not only on the fire scenes, 
Um, I've never been a big fan of firefighters wearing um, fire department identifying things in bars and at parties and, and the like. Um, there are many, many other things, but how you treat people when you go to the supermarket wearing the Wallingford Fire Department t-shirt, the uh, whatever fire department you belong to, you represent everybody, not just yourself. Yeah. Um, you, you're rude to a cashier or a clerk in a store or a taxi driver, bus driver. It doesn't matter. Um, you're wearing that badge, and I'll bring it up so you can see it. Um, you represent everybody in the fire service and especially your department. So I love your words of wisdom about being professional all the time. And you know, um, uh, if I could, so as you heard, I was just in Old Forge, which I know is one of your favorite places as well, the lovely Adirondack region. And FASNI, the Firefighter Association State in New York, they sponsor that uh, Old Forge Fire School now. And they had a motto this year. They had a, a slogan for this year's Old Forge Fire School, and it simply was be nice. Because we live in a very angry, mean-spirited, judgmental world, much more so than in the past, I dare say. People are just angry today. You see it on the roadways. You see it the way they're driving. And you, as you said, the way they interact with people. So here's what I came up with. And this is now part of my presentation. And I've been saying it for the last, if not several months, at, last, at least the last year. As a matter of fact, I believe I have an article. I do have an article coming out in Fire Engineering in October. And it's in the article. And that simply is, in this mean-spirited, judgmental world of 2023, let the Maltese cross stand as an indication and a beacon to show the world that there are still very good people among us. And quite often, they're wearing that Maltese cross. So you're absolutely right, Chief. Your words and interactions with the public can show that there's still good people in the world. We can stand as the light in this sometimes very dark world, or we can just be among the many that seem the thousands upon or millions that are out there that are angry, mean, drive like crazy, cut people off, flash the finger, whatever it is, rude to waiters and waitresses, rude to cashiers. We don't want that. Let's show the world there's still good people out there and they're wearing that Maltese cross. Well said, Chief. You Glad you brought that up. Well, it's how I live my life anyway, but... um. Uh, look back on Alan Brunacini's books, Customer mm -hmm. Service for the Fire Service. One of his closing statements is exactly what you just said. Be nice. Be it's, nice. That's so hard? That's, well, for some people, obviously it is. But I don't want to get into that. I know. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I try not to get involved into the anger and the politics in the world. Um, yeah. You know, um, try to do my best to just smile at people sometimes. People think I'm nuts. You know, I'm walking down the street in New York and I smile at somebody and they're like, what? <laughs> and, you, and you were born and raised in New York. And what do you mean? You're nice too? No, I didn't think anyone from New York was. <laughs> yeah, but it is. Yeah. Um, actually, you talked about the Mineola Fire Department. Where I'm yeah, actually let's going talk to... about your journey, if you don't mind. Is that where you were going to go with? I'd, I'd love to hear about well, your fire service journey. Not really, but I was, I'm actually going to the 130th anniversary oh. this Saturday. They're having a big barbecue. So I'll be down in Mineola. That's um, awesome. Yes, it's definitely my roots. Uh, I joined there when I was 18. Um, 
1974, December 1974. So it was really 1975. <laughs> so it was a long, long time ago. Busy, busy place. Get a ton of working fires, a very densely populated area. Um, you could almost throw a rock to Queens from there. Uh, you know, it's that close to uh, Queens. Um, I was actually born in Queens. Um, but it was a busy volunteer department, a few um, six and seven story apartment buildings, but most of it, just like every place else in this country, are private dwelling fires, one and two family homes. And um, about 75%, although it's a little lower than that now, um, it's maybe 70% of our civilian fire deaths are in one and two family homes in the United States and in Canada. You know, and that's um, equates to about 2,500 people every year in homes. You can look up the statistics. I, I'm gonna, maybe I'm not going to read you the, the uh, website, but FEMA, you put uh, civilian fire deaths. You Google FEMA or search. I shouldn't be using Google. Um, it will tell you both by state, by building, if you want a multiple dwelling fires, it'll tell you how many in multiple dwelling fires. If you want to look at home fires, it'll tell you how many deaths in home fires. Um, I, I have this year's stats I brought with me today. Um, from January 1st to today, 1,495 civilians died in residential fires. Although these fires are not as spectacular as the warehouse fires, the factory fires, um, the high-rise fires. But it's where we lose most of our people. Um, it's pretty crazy. In New York State, because I know you're from New York State, to date, from January 1st to today, in New York State, 111 civilians have died in uh, residential structure fires. It's a big deal. Those, those statistics say a lot. Um, the problem with the fire service and the title of my class that I'm doing this year at FDIC is called um, Today's House Fires Are Not Routine. We tend to become complacent at house fires, unless you're a small department. Um, people get excited when they have high rises and they have factories and these big buildings burning. But we can make the most difference in private dwelling fires. Um, they're traps, both for us and the civilians. We talk about deaths a lot in the fire service, how much property loss. Um, when you're at the department, do you report how much property loss mm -hmm. there was at a fire? How often do we say we saved this much? We saved Never. $20 million worth of fat buildings. I have a um, firefighter rescue survey started by Brian Brush and a few other guys. Yep. I have the last 10 years of um, statistics, and actually I have a graph. It shows about the rescues, and I don't mean removals, civilian rescues, about 75 to 80% of the rescues we make are in single family dwellings, not even one and two family, single family dwellings. Next is multiple family dwellings, and then it goes down from there in different type of occupancies. But it's, um, it's kind of crazy to me. I've been obsessed with house fires. I can't even remember how long. 
There are people talking about technical rescue, nozzles and hoses. That's all important. But we kind of put house fires on the back burner. That's why we get hurt. Yesterday, um, 14 miles from here, we lost a civilian in Norwich, Connecticut. And I want to, do you mind if I break from where I was going to ask you some questions? Not at all. Go ahead, Chief. Okay. Your target audience is mostly volunteers. Now, this gentleman who died in the fire was Norwich, Connecticut. Now, Norwich, Connecticut has, I believe, five departments in it. The center of Norwich is a career department. And then there are three or four volunteer departments around them. And what I see is a big problem in the volunteer service and somewhat in the career service is calling mutual aid by politics or by the buddy system or things like that. In Norwich, sometimes the volunteer companies will skip a whole department to call the buddy in another department to come mutual aid. To me, that seems insane. And I don't know if that had anything to do with yesterday's fire or the death, um, but this is mind boggling to me. Um, geographic boundaries is how they make the decisions who they call. And I think this is a dangerous practice both for firefighters and for civilians. Closest fire department should be able to respond to help, or even if it's not your district, you're the closest fire department, you should be responding automatically. Like my house, I live in a small town called Durham. There's a fire district that's four and a half miles from me. The firehouse closest to me in Durham is seven miles from me. They have changed how they do that here. Um, there's automatic aid when the phone call, and you as a dispatcher understand this, there are indications that this is a fire. There's automatic aid coming. So you're going to get a truck from one department. You're going to get tankers from other departments all automatically, not waiting for the old days where she says, oh, call me Berlin Fire Department to mutual aid instead of, well, there's a firehouse right down the road. Right. So, so sometimes fully manned. Yeah. And I think that's a problem. Do you address that in your book or your classes? I absolutely do. I have a section about mutual aid in my book. Talk about it quite extensively. Talked about it on this show before. You know, and sometimes the reason that company A doesn't work with company B is simply because something happened 40 years ago. Right. To someone's, to someone's uncle's aunt's brother's friend but it still has repercussions 40 years later. And sometimes it's concerns about training and sometimes it's concerns about not focusing on the right things. And my simple explanation is as professionals, we should sit down and talk, air our differences, talk about how we can improve service and at all times be concentrating on Mr. and Mrs. Smith, the civilian we serve and what's best for them. Because that's what professionals would do. What's best for our constituents? How do we get them the best service at the fastest pace? And we do that by working together. 
And uh, working together means more than just words on paper. It means getting to know each other. It means drilling together. It means looking at each other's equipment. It means seeing how the radios work. Are they compatible? There's a lot that goes into it. But as professionals, we should be doing that. And um, it pains me when I read the stories. I don't know possibly what the situation is there. I don't want to speculate, but hopefully, you know, Get, we're getting the message out that I know Billy Goldfeder's written about it quite extensively about do what's right for your community residents, work with your neighbors, train together, get to know them. And if there's some long simmering dispute that started 30 or 40 years ago, get over it and sit down and have a cup of coffee and, and, and work it out. I agree 100%. I think the easiest way to break that I'll call it prejudices that you have from, and I'm just going to use numbers, company one and company eight and company four and company three. Well, we don't like them. They, they suck. And then the guys over there looking at, I started working in a combination department. It still is a combination department. Um, when I first started, or just before I started there, they didn't like each other. We started training together and they go, hey, you know what? That Jim Duffy guy, he's a pretty nice guy. And you know what? That lieutenant over there at Volunteer Company 22 is a real nice guy. When you train together, um, I can't say how many times a year or how often, but they get to know you, that you're not just that jerk who wears a different uniform. Um, it's the same with society, with prejudices and, um, you know, racial or any other discrimination. We think all Asian people are bad or all black people are bad or all Irish guys are drunks and all of that. When you start getting to know these people, they're really no different than you. They're firefighters. No matter where you go, um, off the subject, my wife and I were traveling through D.C. She had to go to the bathroom. And we were driving through D.C. We got off the highway. We were in a ghetto. And when I say we were in a ghetto, we were in a ghetto. And she says, I don't want to go to the bathroom anywhere. I said, there's an American flag on that building over there. That's got to be a firehouse. So I pull up on the apron. I knock on the door. The house watch guy comes out and goes, yeah, what can I do for you? I go, my wife's really got to go to the bathroom. And she... She's kind of nervous about the neighborhood. She goes, yeah, tell her, come on. She won't like it, but she can come in and use our bathroom. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. No matter where I go, I reach my hand to anybody. Um, any firefighter, they'll be willing to. They're no different than you and I. You talked about the Adirondacks. A big problem with the Adirondacks fire service is they're all tiny little towns some of them have 10 volunteers total not responding total and their nearest mutual aid is 15 miles away or more by indian lake blue mountain lake and long lake there are 11 miles between the towns so mutual aid how soon is that coming when you have three guys showing up for a fire in blue mountain lake Right, going to take some time. It's going to take some time, and there's going to be some losses. 
Um, the Big Moose Inn. You know all about the oh, Big Moose man. Inn. That was a tragedy. Um, they're getting to rebuild it, but um, all 100-year-old wood construction in the middle of nowhere where the closest yeah. firehouse is probably 12 miles. Right. And then and the, nearest, the nearest mutual aid is 20 miles. Right. And you know what I like to say, Jim, uh, Chief? I like to say that um, there's – and those firefighters, even if there's 10 in a department and only get three at the structure fire because of the time of day or whatever, they can be no less professional than a department like mine that has 82 members or a department that has over 100. It's just – that is the numbers has nothing to do with being professional. It's it's understanding what you have, what you have to work with, and then getting plans in place to get help as quick as you can, and and working together with those neighbors, which I'm sure they're doing all through that those regions yes. because they have to. And the professional part that you're talking about, most of it is the preparation, the day to fire. If you only have three guys, no matter how professional you are, there's only so much work to get done. Right. But if they pre-plan, train together, they make sure they're couplings match exactly when i when i started as a volunteer um neighbors had different couplings we had to carry adapters for our neighbor community yeah. one right. had new york corp and one had national standard <laughs> they, they're close but they don't work so you had to have you know we're changing um different trying to find that out is not on the fire ground <laughs> Time absolutely is- not you yeah. are so correct and Again, when you go from Blue Mountain Lake to Long Lake and you're wearing your Blue Mountain Lake T-shirt, be courteous. Stop in the firehouse in Long Lake and chat with the firefighters here. Again, build the camaraderie, build the teamwork. Um, Like you said, be the light and uh, take care of it. And, And chief officers... Go knock on the door of your neighboring department and say, hey, we got to work together. We got to, you know, here's when we train. When do you train? Let's get together. Let's talk about standardizing some practices. So when you get to our fire, you know what we're already going to be doing and what we're going to need you to do. It's, It's not that hard. And what I always say, so many ingredients of the professional equation are not rocket science. This isn't a master's level course. I agree with you to some extent. One of the tripping blocks that we have in that, especially at the upper levels, is egos. Egos get in the way. Egos are dangerous. Um, as Brunacini said, they eat brain. Egos eat brains. Um, it's how we get into trouble. Um, after a while, and I don't know where it comes from. I've seen it in departments I've been involved with. Uh, those guys are a bunch of jerks. And this is coming from chiefs of department. And um, the members could be friends with the neighbors, but the chiefs are not doing well. And the chiefs are not going to classes. Um, I can't tell you how many fire departments I've taught in where the chief introduces me and then goes back to his office. Now, I understand. They have a business to run. They have financial things. They have the town council, the city council, the budgets, all of that stuff. But if the chief is going to the training, he's sending a message to the members that training is important. If it's a regional training, they get to meet and they get to 
socialize with these other chiefs. You know, maybe, you know what, they are pretty smart over there in North Japippi, um, Pennsylvania. We have, it's not just the political side that the chiefs have to get involved in. Like a lot of places, and I won't say, I'm going to use New York State Chiefs, but they're a very, very good training organization, New York State Chiefs Association. They do a great job. Um, but a lot of places, they just handle the legislative part of it. They go, they lobby, they write their legislators, but they don't get into the operations. And that's what we're here for. We're here to perform at fire scenes and extrications on the highway. The interstate highways, they cross many jurisdictions. How often do we meet our neighbors on the highway? Probably more than at fires. You know, I can remember town north of us, um, great battalion, actually there were assistant chiefs up there, but the same job as a battalion chief. We would meet at fires. So he pulled up, I pulled up. He goes, hey, this is Wallingford. Who do you want to start the extrication? I said, whoever gets here first. <laughs> I don't care. Right. You know, and, but we had that relationship, him and I. But some of the other shift commanders, egos got in the way. And this was a long time ago. I would say it doesn't happen at all anymore. Um, but when I first was rising through the ranks, that was a big problem. Because the shift commander where I worked was called a captain. And the chief commander in a neighboring city was called an assistant. They changed that, was an assistant chief. We have perceptions of who's who by title. So that's all changed. Um, it's The relationship is the best. It's a great, great city, great, great firefighters. I loved working with them over the years. Um, but some of those things get in the way. Egos, well, you know what? You know, and, and sometimes you'd show up and, and the chief in charge is not wearing turnout gear. And that always made me nuts. What example are you setting to your men to be professional when you're there wearing shorts and sneakers with a radio and you're in charge? Yep. 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 You yep. know, it's, it's, I know technically he's not supposed to be involved in firefighting if he's the incident commander, but something could happen. But also the neighbors that come out and see the chief, I'm going to say it again, flip-flops and shorts and a radio in charge, not professional, embarrassing. There's just something more professional about looking like a professional. Imagine that. Um, when you go see your lawyer, do you want him to wear at least a tie, a nice shirt? Or do you want him wearing jeans and a T-shirt unless you're at a picnic with him? You know, it, even, it can even inspire confidence. People can look at you and be a little more confident. I mean, I'm not going to say the fire chief or officer in charge wearing flip-flops and shorts. I'm not going to assume he's – or say he's not competent. He might be the greatest firefighter in the department. However, when you look at that, you think a little less of him. Or her. So now comes the press. Yeah. ABC News shows up at your fire. Can you direct me to who's in charge? Yeah. 
And with social media today, it's going to be social media as well. And it's going to be viral and instantly transmitted. Who knows how far and how many people see it. And, you know, they form opinions based on what they're seeing. And it's just, it's not a good look. So whenever possible, look professional in the performance of your duties. No doubt. You look at YouTube, right? You look at all the fire departments on YouTube. Do you have opinions? Yeah. And judgments? Yes. Of what you're watching? Yep. Um, yep. And remember, perception's reality. So what what you perceive to be the truth is reality in your in your mind. <laughs> but there's also those firefighters that look for that. And they can't wait to cruise. They thrive on attacking another fire department to make themselves look better. My department would have, look at those jerks from over there. And yep. I don't know where that comes from, but it's really uh, rampant. I, I have a big spiel on that in my presentation. I have a section in my book devoted to that, and I've talked about that a lot because it really bothers me. We celebrate our brotherhood and sisterhood, yet we can't wait to get to the take to the keyboard to rip each other apart and criticize each other. I just don't get it. If you think you're a professional firefighter and you're taking part in that, you are in no way professional. We've got to stop attacking each other. Just like I say, we got to stand as a light in the dark world to the civilian population. Let's be kind and nice to each other as well and recognize, yeah, we can learn from what we're seeing. People have bad days. People do do things that you scratch your head at. Learn from it. Maybe talk about it in-house in a professional manner, but to take to the keyboard and rip them apart is anything but professional. It goes against that. I, It goes against our brotherhood and sisterhood that we love to talk about. Yep. We have to keep it real. Yeah. So you invited me here to talk about house fires. Yes. So well, here's the deal. So let's 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 say this. So just to sum up what we've already talked about, you know, obviously the importance of working with our neighbors, the importance of hey, when you need help, and we all need more help than ever today because very there's very few departments out there that just are teeming with people power. And when you get a fire or a major incident, you're relying on neighbors' help. Hopefully, your neighbors' help. So put plans in place to simply call for help. Empower your dispatch center to send the help from the closest agencies. Get to know those agencies. Work and train with those agencies. Put your ego aside and sometimes sit down, have a cup of coffee, and resolve some preconceived notions about that department next door, an issue that maybe happened 30 years ago. Whatever it is, put it aside, work together, and think of what you're doing and think about how what's most important is what's what's going to benefit your community residents. That's what professionals do. Right, Chief? Absolutely. What I want to add one thing to that. Um, everything you just said, put it with our brothers in blue, our police departments. Um, they're our allies, too. Yep. Um, we're on the same team. We're on the same side. Did, does your district cover any interstates? Yes. Okay. And what is it, 90? The 90. Okay, so just had an actual horrible call. We just had a a horrible call there two nights ago. A young lady was killed up there, either fell out of a vehicle, was pushed out. They don't know yet what happened. But, yes, we were up on 90 just two nights ago. Yeah. So police departments, when I first started 
not in the volunteer side, because um, that was all um, roads, local roads, you know, maybe four lane highway with street lights. But when I moved to where I worked in Wallingford, we had interstates and uh, parkways. Um, the state police, all they wanted at that point was the road opened. They wanted, there was no cooperation. And some of that I'm going to say is the firefighters before my time were rude to them, told them, you know, I'm in charge, blah, 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 blah. When I first became a lieutenant on an engine, we probably at least once a day were responding to an accident or a fire on the highway. Um, we would close lanes. And sometimes cops would have a problem with that. After a while, when they were doing an investigation, I'd say, hey, do you want me to leave an engine on scene to protect you guys while you're doing your investigation? They look at me like I was nuts. We started inviting them back to the firehouse for coffee. Um, see, the problem with the interstates, it's not our local police. It's state police on the highways. So we have to reach across. Our local police, we trained with on a regular basis. So we talked to and they would stop in, have a meal with us or coffee with us. But the state, it came to a while. They were stopping our firehouse all the time. They would ask, do you, do you want me to close the entrance ramp? They would say, you know, and again, how many lanes do you need? They would ask me. That kind of stuff as years went on. I was there 28 years from when I started to when I left. It was night and day. And it is. It's just being kind, being social to the cops. And it wasn't just the old firefighters who caused the problem. There were the old cops that, you know, they were upset because state law says the senior fire officer has control of the scene on the highway unless it's a crime scene. A lot of the older guys, that wasn't the rule before. And they had a hair across their butt over that. Yeah. But it's slowly, look, we're not here to right. counteract you. We're not here to work against you. We're here to protect you as well as protect us. Right. We treated you each know. other as professionals. I hate to keep saying that, but that's what it was. And egos were cast aside. Yeah, I, I won't say the egos totally went away, but they we didn't pay attention to them. Um, and why are you sorry you keep saying it? What's the title of your book? <laughs> the Professional Volunteer Fire Department. Yes. And, it, and professionalism is not just how you treat the public socially. Um, it's doing the right thing at fires. I'm going to talk about a small house fire. It was a, a fire in a dryer on the second floor. They had a little laundry room on the second floor. And I was on overtime. And um, I'm trying to think. I had two of my guys who were also on overtime there. They were on the engine. And the truck was from another shift. And I'll never forget this. We knocked the fire down. Um, maybe 100 gallons of water total in a little laundry room and in a dryer. But you know what a, a dryer that's burned smells like? So I go to the truck guy because typically it's the truck guy's job to remove an appliance that we would do. So I go to the uh, lieutenant and I go, yeah, go get the uh, 
the dryer out and bring it out and put it on the front lawn. I was like, I got to take two. He looked at me and said, I got to take two doors off the hinges. And I didn't say a word. I just crossed my arms and looked at him. And he thought better of it. And he called two guys, started walking up. My two guys that were on the engine were already bringing it out the front door by the time he got his button gear to get it. And here's the way I look at that. Why are we here? We're here to help them. Okay, the fire's out. You want to just go back? You know, you were having lunch or whatever his reason was. But in my shift, we take care of the problem. We squeegee the floor if we can, if we have time. And, you know, it's we don't always do a great job of overhaul or salvage. But you can't leave a dryer in a house. And it was probably a 3,500-square-foot house, nice, maybe 5, 10 years old. That dryer sat in the house for 24 hours. The whole house, all their clothes would stink. They would have to have the insurance yeah. company replace it. It's that simple. Just Sometimes it's the simple stuff. But you know, even that, even at a house fire with serious damage, where most of the possessions and structure are seriously compromised and damaged, and you can still make quite the professional impression on people with how you treat. Even the burned up clothes, the way you, instead of just throwing it into a pile, you know, taking your time and stacking it neatly. And, you know, you don't know what means what to these people. You know, what doesn't seem like anything important to you might be very significant to them. And you can make quite the impression on the people that, have, I mean, they've had a bad day, right? They've, they've had a horrible day. If they see us callously throwing things out windows, which understand in the heat of the moment, we got to do what we got to do. But once the scene's controlled, once the fire's under control, if we can take it back a notch as we mop up and clean up and have some tender, loving care in, in the way we treat their possessions, it sends a good message to these yeah. people that are having a bad day. Ask them where their photo albums are. Right. Where are your photo albums? We'll get them out of the house before they get further damaged. You know, a lot of times you can't do anything about that. Right. But photo albums are something that can never be replaced, although today everything's digital. But, you know, you got a, a somebody as old, everyone's got old pictures as me. On the wall. <laughs> you know? but everyone's got pictures on the wall, you know, wedding pictures, their parents, grandparents, whatever. Yep. You know, yep. So, that's all important. And, uh, you know, professionalism bring the line to the right door so i'm going to go back to fighting house so let's, fires. Get, let's get into the residential house fire so-called routine house fire right and i use that term loosely now there are some that say you know well we don't get a lot of fires well doesn't matter and here's the other thing again all different types of departments out there paid combination big volunteer small volunteer a few runs a year thousands of runs a year well-financed, poorly financed, rural, suburban. You know what? In every one of those districts, I guarantee you there's some residences, right? <laughs> so what we're going to talk about applies to everybody. My brother-in-law works in East New York, in Brooklyn. Not one of the nicest neighborhoods in in Brooklyn. You know, it's, it's um, first fire he had in Nozlin was in a, a 1500 square foot house fire but in a picture of that fire there are more people on the front lawn than i had in my entire department <laughs> <laughs> I so 
going back to what you said, the three-man departments showing up, um, you have to use the resources you have and size up. When we pull up in front of a house fire or a residential one and two-family home, what are some of the dangers in those houses? First of all, people live there. You know, in an office or in a stationary store, if there's a fire, people are going to walk out. They're awake. They're alert. But in a house, people, house fire, people are going to sleep. In a private dwelling, there are no fire doors. You know, maybe from the garage to the house. But if I have a fire in the living room and the kitchen in a house fire at 2 o'clock in the morning, where are my victims? Are they in the kitchen? The books say... The fire floor is the most dangerous is where you should search first. Two o'clock in the morning in a two-story or two-and-a-half-story wood frame. Most likely, not only, what's the probability or where is the probability that we're going to have to look for victims? On the second floor, even though there's no fire on the second floor, open staircases, open bedroom doors. The products of combustion rise from that living room fire or kitchen fire to the bedrooms. That's where we're going to find our victims. Don't get me wrong. There are bedrooms on first floors and sometimes there's single room occupancies where there's multiple bedrooms on first floors. Um, but we need to address that. Um, what's the quickest way to the fire? Fire one. They taught you unburned to burned. Correct? Mm-hmm. So there's a fire in the living room. What's behind the front door in a private dwelling? It's simple. Don't don't. I'm not trying to trick you. It's simple. You know what's be, what's behind the front door in your house? In my living room. <laughs> your living room. So where's the quickest way to get to the fire? And how close to that front door are the staircases to the second floor? Right. Pretty close in most instances. Five to 10 feet. Right. So the quickest access, the most direct route is going through that front door. Maybe get down on your knee, hit the living room, then move in. Unburned to burned. Now I got to stretch around, find the back door, go through the kitchen, around a couple doorways to get to that living room fire. So I understand the theory behind unburned to burn. But the quickest way to get water on the fire, in my opinion, every district is different. Every house is different. Um, but the most direct route is the safest, the most efficient, and will save more lives. And if you have a truck company, I know out west, a lot of them don't search without a hose line. My truck company or my search team when they're going up the stairs, having a, a hose line at that front door protects the staircase, protects the means of egress for the victims and the search team if they have to bail out. Uh, there's so many reasons that a lot of the rules that apply to other types of fires need to be different. In a multiple dwelling, there are protected staircases, there are hallway doors, there are so the smoke and the heat and the fire doesn't travel as readily as it does in a house fire. Just a little simple. So you bring, up, you bring up an interesting question that I'm sure people would be wondering about. 
I show up with my small department with three or four members at two in the morning. Do I stretch and get water on the fire or do I go and attempt rescue? Um, you can go either way with that. I, I know there's stories. I think Keokuk, Iowa is a great example of a kitchen fire that spread like crazy. Yeah, three guys. Right. Right. Three and guys. If, if sometimes you get water on the fire, you don't, there's no one to rescue because they're fine. <laughs> so that's a decision that's got to be made, well, right? Now, I use my department as an example. We have three-man engines. So first engine has a pump operator. The officer is an officer until he makes his radio transmission. Now him and the other guy are the firefighters until more units arrive. Um, where's the fire? Is there a known victim? Can we stretch a line to the front door? Confine or contain the fire? And what I... I have no problem if there's a victim on the second floor and you got a hose line holding a fire on the first floor, one person going. Um, our SOP, first engine, because other units are coming. We know other units are coming, and they're not usually that far apart. First line goes to the fire. Second, and they search off of that hose line. Truck company, which is usually very shortly behind him, will do a search. Now, if you show up and there's a victim in a window and their life is immediately threatened or they look like they're going to jump, once that pump operator charges that hose line, he can throw a ladder. He's not chained to the pump. And I understand he shouldn't leave the pump. It's not like the old days. Today, you throttle up, you set your governor, you're good to go. Whatever your policy is, whatever knobs you have, you set it for the one-line operation, inch and three-quarter. Um, I think personal opinion, and this sounds like I'm trying to avoid the question, what are the circumstances? Right. What is going on? Where is the fire? Is there a known victim that you can quickly grab? Is that uh, victim in immediate danger? Right. Now, that's why I said the one at the window. Are they going to jump? Right. The fire may not be threatening them, but they're screaming they're going to jump. Well, they're scared. <laughs> they're well, going to jump. There. We're coming for you. They, right. Don't you say know. don't jump because they're only going to hear jump. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I, I, you know what? I don't think there's an either or ever. Um, yeah, sometimes the answer is get water on the fire quickly. And sometimes the answer might be we got to – the fire's – on this person, we've got to get them out quickly. Right. And you can do multiple things at the same time. If you need two people to go get them, again, the pump operator, engineer, um, whatever you call them, the chauffeur, while you're going to grab the person, they can stretch a line and drop it at the front door and get it ready right. for when they come out or the next in engine company. Uh, how about you know, this? Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I like I said, it sounds like I'm avoiding the question, but what do I see? How severely right. threatened are they by the fire? It's contained. It's a, now it's a an illegal two family home or you know single room occupancies. There's multiple people right. in there. 
right? And there's a fire, a good volume of fire on the first floor extending up to the staircase. Well, you got to control that staircase because there's 20 people coming down those stairs. So it's, it's what's going on. I can't, you know, like there's a lot of times people either or like my department, first in engine attacks the fire, second in engine supplies water. Always, always, always. Now they may say, Oh, I got a column of smoke and they may drop a dry line, wrap the hydrant and go, and they would get on the radio. Um, we carry 750 gallons of water in a house fire. Do you think you put a lot of fire out with 750 gallons? Leads perfectly to my next question, too, because that's a debate that, to me, shouldn't be a debate. There are uh, some thinking out there that, you know, you don't you don't start fighting a fire till you have hydrant water. And what are you carrying booster water for? There, Right? There's nothing wrong. You know, have good SOPs. Train your members accordingly. But stretch that line and start using booster water because you can knock down a lot of fire, if not all of it. But you'll While probably you're working on getting a feed. You'll probably get the fire out completely, my opinion. That's the same people who say they don't want to dump their tank. They don't want to use a mass stream. They don't want to use two and a half because they'll dump their tank. If you put enough water in the right place, the fire will go out. If you put 50 gallons a minute on a fire for nine hours, that fire is not going to go out. So, oh, the tanker's not here yet. We don't have a positive water supply. Put the fire out. Right. And if you run out of water, it's going to take a while for it to get going again. If you, Again, I feel very strongly about this. Get water on the fire as quickly as possible. 750 gallons. When I was on Long Island, we had 300 gallons in our booster tanks. But we had a hydrant every 500 feet, which means the longest stretch was 250 feet from any fire in town. Right. So different rules. Yeah. So what do you say to the listeners are some of the most common hiccups and problems that we have with the residential fire? I think one of them I'll start actually. One of them is some people just take them for, you know, they're not, they're not dangerous and, you know, they're easy and routine. And I know you like to say they're not so routine. So getting that mindset established in our members when we're training is important that, you know, every fire is serious and every fire has the potential to not be routine. So what do you say are some of the major hiccups that we can work on back in our hometown volunteer fire department that we need to be aware of and also to work on to train on to get better at? I'm going to say size up. Size up from everybody from the first engine company, the firefighter, the officer and the chief officer, not looking at the big picture. Now, in a volunteer company, a lot of times there's no officer in that front right seat. It's whoever ends up there. It could be a guy one year on, and the guy driving's got five years on, and the guy in the back steps got three months on. So those are things. Size up. We tend at house fires and... um, Engine company officers tend to get tunnel vision. They see fire. They pull up, they see fire coming out of the window. That's all they see. Now you're going up a driveway to a house. They don't see the wire that's burned off the house and it's laying in the ground in the driveway. 
they're focused on the fire. They don't see the smoke pushing out of the other end telling you, hey, that's a fire in the attic. Or newer houses, the opposite problem. We have a fire in the basement and they're, they're trust-built floors. Now, I just preached to you that we should go through the front door for quickest access to the fire. Did you size it up? Is there a fire in the basement? Are you working above a fire that was built five years ago that has trusses and a large open floor plan? Um, there's a saying I've heard out there, through the door and through the floor. We're not paying attention. We don't see what's really going on. Where is the fire? Um, reading smoke. Phil Jones is coming to Connecticut in uh, next month. The art of reading smoke. We're not looking at the big picture, and we miss that. Most houses. Now, I'm not going. I'm not speaking of ranches, but know the buildings. How can you identify by the windows outside? There's a big bay window. What room in the house is that? Living room. Probably the living room. Um, what's next to it? Dining room. Dining Dixon. room. So the kitchen's prob probably in the back. Um, so it gives you some indication. A um, couple of other things. Where's the bathrooms? Where's the kitchen? How do you find it? Um, quickest access. Where are the staircases? Although the newer houses today, these giant 5,000 square foot homes, the staircase, where is it? I don't know. You know, <laughs> ha know your neighborhood. We have an area where it's all, we had an area where I used to work. Um, there were ranches, and they call them Ridgeland ranches because that's the name of the street that leads into it. When you open the side door, it blocks the door to the basement. Mm -hmm. So if you have a basement fire, you, you can't find. So if you don't know your district, how does that help you? Um, we do medicals. Every time you go into a house, look around what's going around on. You mess size up. Absolutely. It's, it's so important. Um, I'll give you an example where I failed and my lieutenant failed. We had a fire blowing out the windows on the third floor. It was a big old balloon, turn of the century, the last century, um, built in 1890, 1880, maybe. Three floors. So I arrived first. I mean, fire is pushing out of two windows and the, the roof is starting to smoke. So I opened the front door. I looked. The staircase is right behind the front door. People are bailing out. Engine company shows up. I go to the engine company lieutenant. The stairs are right behind the front door to the left as soon as you go in. So he starts stretching. And I'm standing outside. The fire is getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And the roof's starting to burn through while the truck's setting up. Engine two from command. Nothing. Engine two from command. Nothing. Ambulance shows up. And on our job, the ambulance crew, the medic crew, We'll work with a, usually the truck. But I said, go up there, find out what's going on. Engine two from command. <sighs> okay, we're just about at the fire room. I'm like, man, it's been almost 10 minutes. 
you know, I'm like, I don't say that on the air, but I'm thinking this in my head. It turns out the stairs only went to the second floor. Mm-hmm. So they had to force the door to the second floor apartment, stretch to the back, go up the back, and then fight their way forward to get to the fire. Every house within a two-square-block area was built exactly the same way. How come I didn't know that? Shame on me. How come my lieutenant that was in his district didn't know that? Shame on him. Especially shame on them if they had been on medical calls or other routine minor nuisance calls and didn't yeah. notice. Yeah, and then, you know what? I, I don't want to pick on him. We all learn yeah. from it and we oh, all, absolutely. you know. That's and what um, like this. We talk about it to make us aware of it in a professional manner. We're not but, striking out or anything. We're just, hey, let's we learn there. File that away. But we should know that. Those yeah. are the kind of things. Um, yeah. You know, you pull up to a certain type of structure or a certain neighborhood. They're all generally built at the same time. And uh, again, I still look at like that was a bad decision. But also, communication was awful. The lieutenant should have said, hey, the stairs only go to the second floor. It's going to take me a bit to get out something. Yeah. You were wondering. You were out there do, wondering what was going on. Do you need help? Hey, yeah. I need more assistance to stretch this yeah. line because it. him and a firefighter is our first. Great job there. getting it stretched with the few that they had, but I think he could have so, used a few extra hands, right? Commun- communication. What's how going on? How many times on? in the NIOSH reports when there's been a significant injury or line of duty death? Do you see one of the bullet points of problems is communication, right? There's five of them. Lack of SOPs or, or failure to follow SOPs, lack of communication, nobody in charge, lack of accountability, and can't remember the fifth one. But well, those I are should. Those big ones right there. Yeah. In every one of them, they may not be the main cause, but they all contribute to it. It's the, the um, LODD. Um, the big ones. The big yeah. ones. So, yeah. yes, absolutely. And, um, again, where are the victims? Uh, at a fire that needs water right away, not getting water in a fire. Going, You know, small volunteer departments, and I'm not picking on them, they have limited resources. Limited. New Haven, 28 people go to a first alarm assignment. Um, Again, up in the Adirondacks, you're getting free for the first 15, 20, maybe 30 minutes. What is one thing you have to do search, you have to do ventilation, and you have to do fire attack. Well, you got three people, pump operator, now you got two people. What are you going to do? All right. Size up what's going on, what's the need, what's the highest priority, and get one of them done well. And how can I make the biggest impact with what I have at this moment, right? So, so it might be it might be hitting it hard from the yard to put the fire in check, or it might be raising that ladder to get the person out of the window. You know? Yep, um, hitting it hard from the yard that went against everything I I believed. Me too. Until, and the thing is, um, there are departments, um, some big departments. Dallas, for example, if there's fire shown from a window, they will not pass it to go interior. 
Now, that doesn't mean 20 seconds of water, 10 seconds of water, and then move and get right in on your attack. It's a very valid, valid tactic. It is, it works. I'm not saying, well, fire's coming out of the window around the back. I'm going to go get that and then come back and go through the front door. Give it a quick hit. Now, hitting it hard from the yard doesn't mean spending 10 minutes squirting water in the window. It's not what it means. It means cool it down, reset the fire quickly, and get in there and get it. You cannot, well, you can put the fire out by squirting water in the window, but it's not very efficient, not very safe, and it's going to still be attacking the structure if it has involved the structure already. Right. Yeah. I yeah, so, no, go I, was ahead. Gonna, I was just going to say, you know, you make some very good points there. And to our listeners who are from a smaller department of that, there's nothing wrong with that at all. Be proud of your department. Just work with what you have. Train to what you're going to have. I'm not even opposed. And I think I got this idea from Chief Goldfeder. He said, you know, when people live in a rural area, you might have to be very honest with them and let them know about your capabilities. And here's what we're going to be able to do for you until we get more help, because we just don't have a lot of people in this area. But just if so much of this comes down to training and, and, and getting your members to operate on the same page and understand you know, what your goals are, right? And that's what the number one thing you just said with the line of duty desk, that's where SOPs, SOGs, whatever you want to call them, come into play. And I call it a playbook. You got to have a playbook. So when you pull up, your members have all been taught how to properly size the building up. And they've all been taught and practiced stretching lines and making the correct decisions. And um, it, it comes down to training. Everything comes down to training, <laughs> you know. Um, but I'm going to go back to, because you asked specifically about volunteers. Everything I spoke about is everybody. But in volunteer departments, the big thing is that it could be, the, and I said it briefly before, it could be the junior guy making that decision. Sure. It's not just the chief that makes the decision. I know in some departments, the chief's retired or he works in town and the chief shows up at every call. That's great. But one of the problems with that is the chief doesn't have to make every decision. You know, trust your people. You have a lieutenant on that engine. He knows where to park that engine. He doesn't need you standing out there, park right here, park right here. It's not the chief's job. You know, I want you to take the light to the front door. That's all. Not tell them how to stretch it, how to open right. the nozzle. Uh, let the men grow and learn because eventually they may be the chief. But also that junior guy has to be taught how not to get hurt, how to put the fire out, and how to survey some, yeah, save the victims. I've only been here six months. I don't know. Well, guess what? It's you and the pump operator right now. They have to be taught. They have to be taught how to wear that SCBA. How, I was going to say courageous, but that's how aggressive. And I think aggressive is a great word. I think it's good to be aggressive. Aggressive doesn't mean reckless. Yes, but how with his training, his minimum training, 
how aggressive can he be? Can he get the line inside the front door and, you know, yell out, hello, hello, hello? What can he do? He should be taught those limitations, especially if he's a kid who works in town and he has very little experience. And it's a bedroom community where none of the senior men are around. Yeah. And now does that come down to again? Training. Training. Now I'm going to bring it back to the other side. As you're starting to get older, not as old as me, um, in the volunteer fire service where I live, where I was a volunteer, the problem is we have 18-year-olds and 65-year-olds. A very we real problem. We have 65-year-olds who know what to do and want to do it, but they really shouldn't be doing it. You've got a stent put in. You shouldn't be stretching a hose line into a building. I'm not even sure you should be doing anything more than fire police at that. That's my personal opinion. Um, we have these people who are smart and who are aggressive firefighters that want to get involved. How do we help them in a volunteer service? Um, can they become mentors or at least talk to the kids at the door, tell them what to do? Um, I really shouldn't be sending somebody who's got a heart condition into a burning building. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't have an answer for that. It's a very real problem, um, especially in areas that I know where there's predominantly retired people that are around during the day. And when that fire comes in during the day and that I know they call it the gray squad, one department near me, because it's, you know, retirees that are all what you just described. <laughs> exactly. And they're great firefighters. They, a bunch of them maybe are past chiefs or past officers. They were really into it back in the day. They're still into it because they're going to the call, but there's no one else. So that's a real problem. So the only thing I could say is, you know, that's a subject of the importance of you know, the professional department doing the yearly physical exam, the professional department has training standards that okay. If you're 64 years old and you still want to be a frontline firefighter, you don't get a pass on training. You still got to train to demonstrate competency. Well, I've done it so many years. I'm just going to do it if they need me. Well, I don't know. I don't really agree with that. I call that a dysfunctional volunteer fire department moment. I've had so many years in the department, I don't have to train or drill, but I'm going to stay frontline interior just in case that one day they need me. I don't know about that. Well, that's where the chief or the company officer needs to have a conversation. I need you to help show these younger guys that they need to train. Use them yeah. Prove that it's training is important to the newer guys because they don't know. You know, you have to find a way to sell it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's 1582 and the physical standards and uh, all of that. Um, it's all it's all great, like two in and two out. And I'm, God forgive me for saying that. That's all well and good until you show up with you and the pump operator and there's people trapped in a building. Um, but there's the free pass if there is a known rescue. Right. But right. I'll give you an example. Right here in the community I live in, 
there was a guy who's a volunteer who's now a career guy in a different city. Um, he shows up, he drove the truck, and he had a fire police guy with him. On the front lawn when they arrived, there were two elderly people burnt. Not seriously burnt, but, you know, you could see the clothes were burnt, the hair was burnt. And they say to him, my son's in there. So he stretches the line, charges the line, sets the governor, goes in. And it turns out that the person, the son, was a mentally handicapped individual who's like 40-something years old, who's fighting him tooth and nail, trying to drag him out. And then people started showing up. He's dragged him out the front door. Now, again, all well and good because I live in a – it was a rural community. It's a becoming a bedroom community, but it's still pretty rural. It's 26 square miles and about 6,000 people live in it. So not completely rural, but used to be a lot of dairy farms and the like. But this is what he had to do. It was the middle of the day. There was nobody there. And, um, you know, the rules are the rules. But, you know, like that rule about, not using water until you have a static well what's it sitting in the tank for why'd you right. bring it like you said why'd you bring it get water on the fire if you run out you run out right then you'll get your your static water supply whether it's a tank or, or a hydrant and the water will be back again and you're trained as the pump operator chauffeur or whatever hey chief i'm down to a quarter tank hey chief i'm down to an eighth of a tank right okay time to start backing up a little bit or gravitating. Yes, yeah. I'm sorry. Yes. Well, what about this often asked question? Um, residential, we're talking residential fires. Stretching a line in dry or stretching a line in making sure that you have water? <laughs> Huge pet peeve of mine. What do you got? Huge. There are. How many steps to get in the front door of a house? Generally, three to five? Three to four, yeah, I guess, yeah. Okay, three to five. Second floor, how many steps? My house is eight. <laughs> wow, unusual. Yeah. The average is 13 in the United States. 13 steps to the landing. So. Okay, so seven up, eight down? Yeah. Okay, so you so yeah, you have a split or a high ranch, some people call it. So that's it's either seven down, eight up, or eight down, seven up. Okay. If you have an inch and three quarter, you go and I believe an inch and three quarter should go into a house fire, um, because of small rooms, etc. If you cannot stretch a charged hose line up thirteen steps, you should go be an accountant. <laughs> now I'm going to, and I have some pictures of this in buildings. You see guys with 100 feet of hose on their shoulder. They go in the front door. What are you going to do with that hose when you get inside? If you have a charged hose line, the truck company or the backup people can help push that hose up the stairs. You're going up the stairs for fire on the, on the second floor. It flashes. It starts rolling down the stairs. Okay, so... You have bundles on your shoulder or in your arms on the staircase. You got to flake it out on the staircase. You got to call for, that's only if the pump operator, you call for water. The pump operator is hooking up to the hydrant right now. He's not at the pump. 
And that fire is rolling over your head while you're waiting for it to get there. Now, many departments near me, they stretch dry. And I believe there are reasons to stretch dry. It's not a never, 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 but it's a big house. And it's a long way away. I don't have much of a problem with that. But my belief is if you don't have a good reason to stretch dry, house fire, I'm not talking multiple dwelling or warehouse fire or Home Depot, I'm talking a private dwelling. There's never, let me rephrase that, almost never reason to stretch dry into a private dwelling. Staircase is how many feet wide? I'm going to look at my staircase right now. Four and a half feet wide. A, a good sized one. What are you going to do with that hose? You ready for a war story? I'm and ready. Then a very short war, war story. It was late in the day. Brand new firefighter with me. I looked. I saw fire coming out of the back window. I, I made the decision. And it was a very rare decision for me. We're going to stretch dry. When we get to the landing, we'll flake it out. So going up the stairs, lights up, fire rolls over Bill's head, literally. We drop the hose on the stairs. I call for it to be charged. It goes in the stairway. Ballisters, the spindles, two folds went through the baluster. Oh. Got stuck there. Got stuck. So fire is still rolling above Bill's head, and he's only getting a amount of water coming out so i'm rotating pulling 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 i feel a little twinge in my back i'm pulling pulling now a truck company was on the way to do something else had to take their tools and bust up the railings so i could get my hose out so we get the fire out it was a little more than room in the contents it was room and contents but just rolling out into the hall so we knocked the fire down i'm laying on the floor i can't feel my legs my legs are completely numb. And uh, the second engine company comes in, Joe, uh, the lieutenant, says to me, he goes, Duff, you can stand up. The fire's out. He goes, no, I can't. He goes, no, really? You knocked it down. I Get go, up. No, it's okay. <laughs> I can't stand. Um, I herniated three discs in my back. I actually herniated two, and uh, one was bulging. It oh. was that rotational trying to pull the hose. I ended up getting surgery. I was out of work seven months, oh. and I do to this day know if I ch- went in with a charged hose line, that never would have happened. Never would have happened. Plus, just no. the safety aspect of it. It's just, it's just an example, and I never did it. But it was like it looked like a nothing fire from my size up. How many times um, do you hear that? It didn't seem like a big deal. It was nothing. And it was, nothing was showing. I was a fairly new lieutenant, and the firefighter was his first fire after the academy. Oh, wow. So, but anyway, there's, I have some videos that show the exact same thing happening. They get to the top of the stairs and his helmet's on fire. <laughs> and now he's calling to charge the hose line. Yeah. I just. So I, I, you remember the late Tom Brennan. Of course uh, I do. Fire engineering and his random thoughts, which is a great read. If you yes. I remember reading the random thoughts when they were part of the magazine. But then I'm going to stop you there. I Go saved ahead. them. I saved them in a in a, a three ring binder. Well, prices, and, told, and, then, and then when that book came out, um, 
I got rid of my three ring binder and bought wow. the book. Uh, so now, so yes, no, go ahead. Okay. I'm sorry. I like to give that. I used to like to give that book out for special occasions to some of my firefighters. Yep. And that now I got it. I actually I don't have any left because I got rid of all mine. So I need to buy that again. But I remember reading an article when I was an officer doing you know planning engine drills and stuff, and he had an article on stretching dry lines in the residential houses. residential fires and he was dead set against it for many many reasons and he said you should never stretch a dry line um into a fire area ever and he goes in a residential house is a fire area even if it's a one-bedroom fire consider a house at the average house of 2500 square feet whatever that's a residential area don't just don't ever stretch a line dry that's their Uh, policy FDNY, that's their policy. They don't stretch into private dwellings dry. Right, right. You can make sure you got flow. Make sure you got a good flow. Make sure, you know, that the pressure's set. Make sure you got, you know, it's just there's so many safety reasons. Where do you hook up in a a, uh, standpipe building? Floor below. Right. In a house fire, that's the front door. (laughs) I myself experienced it when I was chief of department. We had a daytime a residential bedroom fire and against our sop the crew stretched dry and got to the top of the stairs the fire was coming out of the bedroom down the hallway called for water and what happened nothing there was a problem at the pump and they had to back out fortunately nothing happened but it was a moment where we could regroup and then we talked about it afterwards and uh, they understood the error of their way. They went against our procedures, and it, luckily nothing happened. But again, it could have if they had been down that hallway a little bit more when they called for water and didn't have it. That fire might have caught up with them as they were escaping, uh, which is another good point. We talked about it as professionals afterwards, the importance of the post-fire critique. I think that's being lost today. It doesn't even have to be a fire. It could be in just a, a fire alarm investigation call. Are we spending a few minutes at the tailboard talking about it? Don't you think that's important? I do. And uh, as a matter of fact, just before I left, we started, when well, we went to an automatic alarm, we would stop before the companies got released and we'd talk about it. What if, what if, what if? Um, I actually tried to get it where we would ladder a building, like if it was an apartment building. Right. Anytime we showed up an automatic fire alarm, we would ladder the building, but the chiefs were against it. Oh, if we get another call, then you got to take it down. And, you know, you know what? Again, I understood my place in the pecking order. And yes, chief, you know, and um, and that's OK. Um, I call it the what if drill. I wrote an article for fire yeah. engineering about it. It's, it's going to be a section and it is a section in my book. You know, routine call. You're picking up after a few minutes. The alarm malfunction, the food on the stove. Hang on. Let's talk about it for a minute. What if this was a fire? Yeah. And um, I agree with you. I'll go back one more step. We were talking about the tailboard critique, how important that is. It's so important. But, so you, important. Have, but you have to frame it correctly. Absolutely. Um, You're not, not there to ju- by anyone. Right. No judgmental. Um, and go around. Give everybody a chance to say what went right for you, what went wrong. Let them say that this went wrong for me because I did this. Don't let somebody else say you did this wrong. So 
give them an opportunity to fess up, although that's not really what it is. If I would have done this, it would have gone better. So what right. went right, what right. went wrong, and close with what could we do better next time? It ha you have to be so careful because we're as firefighters, we're type A people, most of us, not all of us. There are some slugs among us, but um, what could we do better? Yeah. You know, we're competitive. We have to be careful because it's very easy to say, well, engine three did this. Well, you know what? That doesn't fix anything. Now they walk away with a bad attitude. Right. And um, so you have to be careful. What's the word you use? Professional. We have to be professional. We're not there to attack and critique each other. We're right. there to critique right. the incident and what could go better. Yep. And remember, go remember in the volunteer ranks, you want them to go to that next call. They're not earning yeah. a living doing this. So how you handle them has a direct impact on their yeah, morale. You know what? I'm, I'm going to interrupt you there a little bit. The career side is not much different. They they have to come to the next call, but do they have to be into it? Do they have to be yeah, professional? Yeah. Do you do yeah. do they um, have to better themselves? If right. you're not a good leader and um, you don't give them the opportunity and treat them like a, a human being. Um, Praise them for when they do good work. Again, you know, the book tells you praise in, in public, you know, right. critique in private. But I'm not going to go through all that stuff. But, you know, say thank you. Uh, walk across the truck room floor. You see the guys doing something. And uh, just say thank you. Nice job. I'm going to tell a story, and I hope uh, this past chief of mine's not listening. But <laughs> they were doing work. They did some work. I mean, these guys started right after truck checks, working, welding, doing stuff on the truck, making a place to put airbags. So I went to the chief and said, hey, could you just, when you go get your coffee um, as you go by, could you notice them and just say thank you? Because you know what? I can't be like you. This is why I promote people like you. And, you know, I just can't be that touchy-feely guy. And it was a very brief conversation. I was like, okay. But Jim Duffy says thank you every day to have the chief of department walk by and notice, catch them doing something good, like Brunacini used to say. Um, it makes a difference. Even that the does. most jaded slug will notice, hey, the chief did really notice us. He's not such a bad guy. Um, and again, he's probably having a bad day, had a meeting with the mayor that morning. I'm not blaming because I like this person. But I was, I was trying to help him mm -hmm. touch but and again he had a stack of papers on his desk I'm, and you know what it could have been the moment uh he's a nice guy i i like him very smart um um i liked working for him because i could debate with him i could you know yeah i'm not at a fire but i think we need to do this and you could if you could sell your point he'd sometimes say yeah that's a good idea and say you know what good points very valid, but as chief of department, no, we're not going to do that. And that was the end of the story. But I've worked with other chiefs who are like, I'm the boss and this is what we're going to do. So, yeah. again, this guy was a good guy. Um, maybe I caught him on a bad day, but I was like, okay. <laughs> 
so you know, anyway. it, helps, it helps to build relationships with people it truly does i mean i know it's cliche but it's in every leadership book there is but it it it, it true doesn't mean you got to go to dinner with these people doesn't mean you're going over to each other's houses on a day off you're just genuinely being nice to each other and if you build a relationship it'll do wonders within the firehouse yeah. walls and on the fire ground i am gonna um cut you short because i do have some stuff to do but what i do want to do is say thank you so much for having me pay attention always look at the big picture um and if you could bring mark back in here for a second mark can you join us uh oh. So before we got on on the air here, Mark was telling me Mark has become a volunteer firefighter where he lives not okay. too long ago. And they had a, a a house fire this week. Tell us about it. Oh, oh no. I'm gonna spot, spot again. No, we did we did and it was it was good. It was um you know we, we so we live on it's basically a retirement island. There's 1500 people that live here and you get on an island yeah we yeah on an island so there's no second or you know mutual aid is uh two hours a ferry ride away so um oh how many hours uh, well it's the ferry okay. is actually 30 minutes but you got to call them then they got to come they got to call the get the ferry captain there because it's the middle of the night so then they have to fire up the ferry so it it's probably uh, if everything works perfectly it's the middle of the day it'd be it'd be you know 35 minutes away um but most in the middle of the night it'd be two hours before wow um, imagine that chief yeah. yeah um but uh yeah so we get you know it seems about like a fire every uh one to two years you know it's not that many people on the island and so for us what i find interesting is for us it's a it's a low frequency, high risk event, to be honest, because we, we do train and we, you know, we got a great chief. we got a great crew that, that, uh, you know, we train on it and every day. And I found that when we showed up in the middle of the night, everyone's, ex it's one in the morning, everyone's exhausted. And, and we fell back on our training and then took care of it. But it was, we were lucky because if it were a couple of weeks earlier when it was really, really dry, I mean, it could have been really bad and windy and, um, because it's, you know, we live on a very, it's a lot of trees and, uh, but we got a little rain, so it didn't spread as much as it could. And we got in between it and, and the structures or and the other structures, but, um, luckily the, the resident got out and, uh, and with his dog and is, you know, the process of figuring out how to rebuild, but yeah, it was training paid off training paid off. But I also learned that I'm really out of shape. Yeah. Training paid off <laughs> and, and I need to work out more, you know, um, as with most volunteer departments, we, we luckily have, I was the young guy for a long time, but we, now we have <laughs> younger people that have joined and, um, and, uh, who are stronger and you know, able to pull lines a little better. But, um, but I've learned that, you know, I need to get in a little better shape for myself and to, and to keep everyone else safe too. And, um, but yeah, training paid off and, uh, and luckily, um, we made the situation better when we arrived. So it was good. Wow. That's awesome. And, and for my listeners, you know, 
the 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 face behind all the work for the fire engineering uh the new video portion of fire engineering let me introduce you to mark Howe. um what is your title are you a producer or what what's your i, I, I know you do a lot i know my official clarion titles director of video but for this ah. for this for the podcast i guess i'm the producer so yeah okay well it has a great job, and it's nice to have you sneak out into the open here so people can get a look at you. Yeah. Thanks for joining. Well, no, I love it. Thanks again, Mark, for everything you do. Oh, um, I just want to – you made me think of something that I was going to bring up, but I forgot to because of the volunteer service. Um, I was teaching at a private company recently, and one of the guys raised his hand and goes, why are all the firefighters by me, all the volunteer firefighters, so fat? How did they do their job? They're never going to get me out. I'm going to have to help him out. Now, I know that's a very general statement and it's not true, but it's something I do see as well. Um, and I see it in the career side. This is not, I think the fire service needs to do a better job on wellness. Um, in a union shop, it's almost impossible to mandate physical fitness training. There are some things you can do, um, but I think we, as a service, need to do better taking care of ourselves and career and volunteer departments, but more so in the volunteer service, people are out of shape. But you have more people showing up in, like on Long Island, you know, 100 people show up at a working structure fire. So the people who can't do it don't have to do it. In smaller departments, Everybody needs to be able to do the job. They need to be able to stretch a line. They need to be able to climb a ladder. And they need to be able to get Mrs. Smith under her arms and her drag her out to the medics outside if necessary. And more importantly, the firefighter wearing full turnout gear. What can we do? And I know we can do training. And sometimes Mark discovered it at a fire that he needs to be in better shape. Not that you're in terrible shape. But if you do training, like RIT training, where some of these people are a little out of ship, they see some shortcomings in themselves and then maybe offer some remedial or like, what can we do? Maybe as a group, we could start doing like on Tuesday nights or Sunday mornings, um, go for a walk together or, or um, you know, swing an ax on a tire or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, it's hard to force people. They're volunteering. I understand that. It's hard to force them on the career side. But sometimes if we're doing writ training, hey, I'm counting on you to get me out. Um, maybe we could work out together so we could all help each other in the future. You know, uh, Dan Kerrigan and Jim Moss, sure. Firefighter Functional Fitness, they say it so well. And I actually have a, a big section on this in, in my book, uh, The Professional Volunteer Fire Department. They say, I'll paraphrase, it's something all along the lines of being fit for duty is one of the basic, most basic requirements for being a firefighter, career or volunteer. It need not yep. matter. In my department, we've had some success. Um, we actually had pre-COVID a physical fitness trainer come in twice a week and work with our members. Um, it was a lot of fun. We had pretty good participation. Some members got in the best shape of their life. It went away because of COVID and we have not brought it back yet. Um, but yeah, it definitely needs to be thought of because it, it, it mirrors society, does it not? It really yes. does. Oh, absolutely. And I'm not blaming them, but sometimes no. you don't realize what you really need to be able to do. Right. Um, right. You know, and um, 
And being yeah. CrossFit, it's not necessarily CrossFit. Sometimes I've seen those guys struggle when the guy who's a little overweight can go for hours and not get tired. So again, just try to take care of yourselves, be better. And in closing, I'm going to do what I always do in close on my show with Anthony Avillo is um, when you have a chance, um, try to buy American. Um, it's not always easy. Uh, it's impossible. I'm looking at a laptop right now. It's impossible to find a laptop made in America. But volunteer fire departments get their funds from taxpayers. Career firefighters get their paychecks from taxpayers. So if we buy American and keep Americans working, it helps us. If that's the only reason you want to do it. Um, well, we can blame the Republicans. We can blame the Democrats. You can blame whoever you want to blame. But if we continue to buy stuff made in other countries, example, I'm buying um, tires for my truck uh, next month because you get four for three. But um, always looking for the deal, right? Well, well you know what? I have a pickup. I have a pickup truck. Tires are three hundred dollars plus, so right. that's a big deal. But do you think Goodyear are made in America? Good Rich. I, I don't know what is General what? Tires. Michelin. Michelin makes the tire. They they make them all over the world, but they make the tires in the country where they sell them. In most cases. Yeah. So Michelin tires and the ones for my truck are made. In, and you know how hard it is to find out? There's a code on the tire that you got to read. But Michelin tires are made in America. The Goodyear tires for my truck are made in Korea. That, not oh, that it matters. I don't hate I don't hate Koreans, but no, I want to put American is, workers. And where I live in Buffalo, who I love my city. I'm proud of my city. We have had in our history over the last well, in my lifetime, the, the horrible factory job losses. Oh, yeah. But we still have a tire manufacturing plant right here in my hometown, Dunlop. It's now owned by, a, a, I believe, a Japanese. I should know this. I'm embarrassed that I don't. I can't pronounce the name. I think it's a Japanese company that now owns it, but it was the original Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company, or Dunlop tire company it was in their they're right here and i i know several volunteer firefighters that work there do you know so what they're made right here in buffalo i don't I'm care i don't care who owns it right i care they were putting workers to work like people break my chops about driving a toyota it's made in texas except for the transmission my toyota pickup truck is made in texas uh, but people say but it's owned by a japanese company i don't i don't care who owns gm right. I care right. about the workers. Yeah. So, um, so chief, two things. I know you got to go. Um, if I, I believe, um, I'd like you to just sum up the residential fire. Not so routine. Uh, what we should concentrate on, be aware of, hazards to avoid. Any final thoughts before we depart? Very, very simply. Um, We've become, unless you're a small department that only goes to a fire every two years, like Mark just said, um, we've become complacent at house fires. Um, uh, it's just a house fire. Nonsense. In the next 24 hours, there will be a thousand American homes that has a fire that needs a response from the fire department. I only found that statistic out about a year ago. 1,000 American homes We'll need a fire department response in the next 24 hours. That's a heck of a stat. 
Something that so, we gotta remind ourselves. But people live there. Children, mothers, fathers, grandmothers, invalids. That's where people live. Um, so they're not routine. You never know what you're gonna find. The guy could be a shift worker, two o'clock in the afternoon, the guy could be sleeping in the house. Basement fires. What's in a basement? Everything. <laughs> everything and any I was gonna say anything, but everything and anything. You're working above lawnmowers, motorcycles, hazardous materials, um, dogs, pit bulls when you go in the back door that want to rip your arm off. And I don't mean to say pit bulls, a dog. You know what? Pit bulls are just like any other dog. It's how they're trained and bred and all that. So I, I don't want to just but there's attack dogs, guard dogs. Um Again, open staircases. One way out of every room. Right? Um, bathrooms with tiny little windows that firefighters can't get out with their air pack on. Um, water supply. I've never had a problem with water supply in my entire career, though we have one side of town that has new houses that used to be all farms or now... 5,000 square foot houses, there's no water out there. So we have tankers that come from the volunteer companies and the neighboring communities. Um, but water supply, establish a water supply. The number Don't one priority is water. <laughs> I'm going to go there. Number <laughs> one priority is to put water on the fire. Protect and then, and we'll say, and then, or rescue victims. All of our actions must be towards saving lives. Um, and don't stretch dry. <laughs> I I firmly believe in not doing it. If your department does it, it's really fire. good. Again, my opinion, there are other departments that do it routinely. I'm not going to argue. I don't work there. Right. Um, they practice at it. They train doing it. It still, to me, is too much of a risk. Um I was going somewhere. Oh, get water on a fire, rescue victims. Um, oh, there was one point, one more point I wanted to make, and it's gone. See what happens oh, when you get old. That's all right. And then I thought it was the, the you know those four. I know there were five of them, but you thought five. of the four big areas that our listeners can concentrate on. Uh, the SOP. Just just Google the NIOSH 5. Um, I can do it right now for you, and I'll tell you what they are. Forgive me for looking at my phone while I'm doing this. Well, we knew um, the first four of them we knew was SOPs, lack of incident command, right? Improper risk assessment, which is poor size, size up. Yep. Lack of incident command. Lack of accountability, inadequate communications, and the lack or failure to follow standard operating procedures, either not having them or not following them. Yeah. So I actually said all five of them before. Yeah, you did. I just, lump, I just lumped them together. They're so important. Um, and they're not the cause. It may be a building collapse, uh, an explosion in the furnace. But all of those things are cause, causal. They were supporting factors that helped cause it. Right. 
Good um, stuff. So it it stuff. is. And you know what? Those things are all fires. Many of the things I talked about are for all fires, not just house fires. The point of my class and my belief in house fires is we can't become complacent. I've been to a thousand of them. I've been to a hundred of them. Oh, it's just a house fire. Well, everything went well a thousand times, a thousand and one times. It was a trust constructed living room floor and you fell into the basement because you didn't size up. That's where the fire was and that's how it was built. Well, it was built three years ago. What are the odds of trusses or lamb beams? You know, so we need to know what we're going to. Um, Conversely, you might say we only get one every two or three years. What's the big deal? Right. Right. But Mark said it right. Low frequency, high risk. That's Absolutely. perfect. There's a Best lot way of risk. Yeah. And Good what stuff. we're going to is, is house fires. They're high frequency, but we don't think it's a high risk. Don't let your guard down. And I'll stop talking. <laughs> That's okay. You're, uh, you told me once, um, I think I said to you something about, you asked me where I, I'm from, and I said, well, I'm just a volunteer, and you stopped me right there, and that kind of reaffirms what we talked about earlier about your take on volunteer, paid, doesn't matter, and you've said it so many times tonight about being kind, and being kind is one of the equations that I like to say is professional. Any last thoughts on being a professional? and being a volunteer firefighter. Yes, and I stole it from the internet. It's not my thing. Do you want to be the firefighter coming to your emergency? Be the firefighter that you want coming to your emergency. That says it all. It sure does. Or, or to your mother's emergency. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 I, I stole that from the internet, so I can't say that's mine. But I love it. <laughs> If people wanted to get a hold of you, Chief, they got questions, would like you to come in and teach your house fires class. Yes. Just, how can they get a hold of you? Okay. Um, Mark, um, when you edit this, you can put this on because my email is a very long email. It's shift1commander at comcast.net. And it's S-H-I-F-T, the numeral one, commander at comcast.net. My cell number is 860-558-7881. And you could just put that up on a on a, uh, a slide, whatever, however you want to do it, Mark, because I have complete faith in you. And um, I hope to see you next year at Old Forge. <laughs> well, I get up there a few times a year. So um, yep. as of now, we'll be planning on that. And um I've taken your class. I encourage our listeners to take his class. You won't be disappointed. I have a whole page of notes here I didn't get to yet. One of them is called Duffyisms, things that uh, oh, no. that I wrote down. I gave it the name Duffyism, and uh, we'll save those for another uh, for another episode. In other words, what what is shit? It's not what you oh, think yeah. of. Yeah, what sudden heat induced terror? I believe is what you referred to yes. it as. Murphy is always on scene. Um, I had a bunch of them. Um, but you forgot you forgot Duffy's corollary to Murphy's Law. Which is? Murphy was an optimist. Ah, there you go. 
But uh, in real life, in real life, I'm an optimist. But when you run the fire ground, you have to think like a pessimist. Absolutely. Chief, thank you so much for coming on. Chief Jim Duffy from the Wallingford, Connecticut Fire Department, retired chief from there, also a volunteer back in the day in Mineola. Still out there teaching, still learning, still going to classes. An honor to have you on, and I look forward to seeing you again soon. So, folks, wait, thanks wait. for listening in. One more thing. Don't episode. forget your book. Oh, yes. The Professional Volunteer Fire Hopefully it'll find its way on your bookshelf soon. So uh, if anyone needs to get a hold of me, my email, tamerrill63 at aol.com. You can get a hold of me through my Facebook page, the Professional Volunteer Fire Department. Please give it a like. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter. I have a website that has a lot of links to these podcasts, my articles. I have an article coming out, another one in uh, October's issue of Fire Engineering Magazine. And, of course, I'll get a link up there for my book as well the Professional Volunteer Fire Department. It was my honor to put that book together. And thank you to everyone at Fire Engineering and Clarion for making that possible. My next show will be Tuesday, November 7th. So thanks again for checking in. And remember, true professionalism is never defined by a paycheck. And our residents are owed professional service delivered by professional firefighters representing professional organizations. And I'll say this as well, as I said earlier. Let the Maltese cross show the world, show your community that there are still great people out there and they're often wearing that title firefighter. Thanks for joining and take care folks. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.